I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, welcome to Parenting the Adlerian Way. I'm your host, Adlerian family counselor and parenting expert, Allison Schaefer. Each week, I answer your burning parenting questions to help reduce the stress of parenting one tip at a time. We'll explore Adlerian psychology together and learn methods of child guidance for raising a happy, confident, capable, resilient child. Hi, it's Allison, and welcome back to the podcast. And I'm excited to bring you another guest interview, although she has actually been with us before on a previous episode. Uh, today, we're talking with Jessica Leahy about her latest book. Um, but let me introduce you, and then we'll get to our uh, our new book and topic today. She actually writes about education and parenting and child welfare for such notables as The Atlantic, The Washington Post, and The New York Times. Her previous book is the New York Times bestseller, The Gift of Failure, How Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. So again, scroll through the podcast so you can catch that one. She is also a member of the Amazon Studios Thought Leader Board, and she wrote the curriculum for Amazon Kids, The Stinky and Dirty Show. She lives in Vermont with her husband and two sons. And uh, thank you so much for making the time to talk about this important new book, The Addiction Inoculation. Well, I always love talking to you. It's always so much fun. So I'm thrilled to be here today. You know, you sent me an advanced copy of this and I just peeled through the whole thing. So um, I I love the the content. And I think um, I may have mentioned to you when you were telling me you're working on this. I've been working for maybe five years or more on a project here in Canada uh, called Hashtag Family Talk, which is a program to prevent mm-hmm. underage drinking. Um, so, you know, I'm a, a partner in your thought process, but there's so much information for parents here, um, not only about why we need to have this important conversation, but a lot of the how-tos, which I always appreciate in a parenting book. So maybe start with, t- tell us a little bit about what inspired you to write this book. Well, you know, every anyone who's ever written a book has gotten to the point where, you know, it's like 24 hours after the first book was published and people start asking, what are you going to work on next? 
Like and, you can uh, get any rest. Like- I know, I know. And I, I really didn't know for the longest time. Um, so I got sober when I sold the gift of failure about the same time. It wasn't a coincidence. I wasn't going to be able to juggle everything uh, with the drinking. And I had a very loving intervention by my father. Um, I went and got sober and have been sober now for uh, seven and a half years, going on eight. So I started, I had left my full-time teaching job, the teaching job I talked so much about in Gift of Failure, and because I couldn't do everything all at once, I couldn't travel and be a speaker and do all the teaching and do all the writing. So I started working- raise a couple of kids to be- And raise a couple of kids, yeah. (laughs) So I started working, teaching part-time instead of full-time, and I was teaching at an inpatient drug and alcohol rehab for adolescents. So I did that for five years. And uh, it was by it was just a ridiculously wonderful teaching experience. It was all about engagement, all about trauma informed teaching. Uh, it was just a fantastic experience. And you know, I kept pitching ideas to my agent, like, "Oh, I could try this. Oh, I could try that." I knew I didn't want to sort of write "Gift of Failure" part two. That was not something that I was sort of feeling. And you know, when you're going to write a book, you got to you're going to be talking about that book for a really long time, so you better love it. And about Five years after Gift to Failure came out, I was uh, driving down to a speaking event in Massachusetts and it just all the pieces sort of clicked into place. And I pulled off the side of the road and I texted my two best friends who are also my co-hosts for the hashtag AmWriting uh, podcast. And I said, I've got it, like the title and everything. And it was just all this stuff that dovetails with Gift to Failure, things about my, you know, I so because I'm an alcoholic and I was raised by an alcoholic and there are alcoholics in both sides, both sides of my family, maternal and paternal and, and drug addicts as well. And ditto with my husband, he's got it on both sides of his family as well. So our kids came into this world with an increased risk of substance abuse um, during their lifetime. And so I, as a parent wanted to know when the experts say substance abuse is preventable, what is that mean? What does that mean for me as a parent? What does that mean for me as an educator? What can I control? What can't I control? What is the genetic aspect? What is the, you know, what's nature versus nurture? All of that stuff. I just needed answers. And frankly, I have the best job in the world. I get to have, you know, like get questions and, you know, come up with questions. And then uh, I took about a year to sort of research so I could get to the point where I could even write the proposal for the book. And then uh, luckily my editor was all in and And this book is sort of for all parents, not just parents with substance abuse in their family, but most of us have some somewhere. And for educators, there's a whole chapter on what good education programs look like. But essentially, it was the book I really needed and couldn't find that answered the questions that I had about, you know, and subtle things, too. Like, you know, the party line is that, um, you know, peer cohort really predicts risk for substance abuse. Like if your kid's friends do drugs, your kid will do, will be more likely to do drugs, but that just seemed extremely black and white. And, and I, I sort of, I, my instinct said there was some nuance there. And so I got to dive really deep in the research with the help of my husband, who also happens to be a statistician and, uh, and really tear the research apart and figure out what that meant. So it's, it's been such a cool journey for me of learning, which is, uh, you know, where, what turns my crank. And, and this is where I, you know, I have to be the spokesperson for all parents and say, thank you. Thank you. The tireless hours of research and oh, I love it. Shredding. I love it. <laughs> We're so glad you do because every parent, every parent wants to do the do best by their kid. Wants right. to be informed. 
but who can take a year off on every right. subject matter? So to, to have someone who's a content expert, to have your story, your personal journey, to have work, like talk about the confluence of things, um, you know, the working in the uh, rehab center with youth. I mean, it's just all fantastic. So, well, it, um, it got even more fun because at one point I had to look up. It was really fun. There's, you know, all this anecdotal evidence about the fact that like, you know, having a therapy dog around can help with, you know, all kinds of trauma and can it help with recovery? And so I got to even do a deep dive into like what ask, what role do animals play in potential, you know, recovery and, and blah, blah, blah. So it was, you know, I even got to bring the dogs in my, and into the picture. So that's, that's always really fun for me. And, and now how old are your boys? Just so our listeners know that. So when I wrote Gift to Failure, they were nine and 14. And now hold on to your hats. They're 17 and 22. So my oldest is in his last uh, bit of his, he's finishing up his second to last semester of college. And my younger one is a junior in high school. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, we talk about alcohol being in the culture or the pressures, mm-hmm. cultural pressures, your kids have, you know, in that cohort and moving through it to the legal drinking age. Yeah. So, you know, you've, you've also had to sort of practice what you preach. Yeah. Your, and, your own and household. I will, well, and I will say uh, the younger one is extremely miffed about this, but we changed a lot about the way we discuss drugs and alcohol, our habits and our family rules around drugs and alcohol. We've changed some things in between the two kids, which of course the Uh younger one is like, this is so unfair. Ben had a more permissive stance and now you guys are taking a no, no tolerance, zero tolerance policy with me. It's so unfair. But, you know, I think, you know, from my perspective, learning changing what we do in response to the learning that we do, admitting that we did things wrong the first time around and leaving behind what doesn't work and bringing forward with us what does work. That's modeling that for my kids is one of the most important things I do. So, you know, suck it up, buttercup. He's going to have to deal with a little bit of that. And as long as we're sharing with him the why and not the just because I said so, you know, I think there has to be some, most teenagers are like this, but definitely my teenager is like this. If you do it just because uh, it's all over, he is not interested. The why really gets at, um, you know, what, what makes this something that I have to do, I have to change as a parent. Yeah. And, and, you know, I love you so much. I'm going to say no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and so let's talk about the why. Sure. Let's sure. Talk, so talk about the, the, the concerns about, you know, or well, share, share the part that, that was, um, that you feel is important for parents to understand. Cause I think parents have, um, some information mm-hmm. and they have a huge either misunderstanding or gap in knowledge. Right. Right. Um, around why we want to say no to our children around drugs and alcohol. Right. And right now, actually, adults um, are getting a really mixed message because and and that's fine. It's just, uh, you know, I, I just want to help clarify things. And to make it really clear, just like with Gift of Failure, the last thing I want to do with this book is make anyone feel guilty, make anyone feel shamed, make anyone feel like they didn't do everything they can do. This book is, as I said, this book I wrote pretty much for me so that I could feel more empowered. And that is what I hope this book will do for parents. Does it make you feel empowered with some information so that you feel like you have a little more control and understanding of the situation? So anyway, so for adults right now, what's really interesting is there's a couple books that have come out um, just recently and over the past couple of years that talk a lot about safe drug use for adults. Dr. Carl Hart has a new book called uh, Drug Use for Grownups, and Michael Pollan wrote a wonderful book about psychedelics and adults. And 
there are drugs and use that are not maybe 100% safe, but are really not that dangerous for adults. That is not what I'm talking about. Adults, if you're an adult and you want to go out and responsibly use drugs and alcohol, then, you know, that's your business. I'm talking about adolescent brains for the moment. Well, I'm talking about children's brains. And when I say children's brains, you have to understand that there are two periods during childhood where the brain is extraordinarily sensitive to outside influences because it's what's called plastic. There's these two periods of incredible growth and development in the brain from zero to age two. And of course, in utero as well. And that's that's something I'll talk about in a second. And then um, from puberty until the early 20s. During zero to two and puberty to early 20s, the brain is changing. It's so much is happening. So much, um, you know, from synaptogenesis, little synapses growing and the nerve sheaths becoming myelinated, getting this fatty sheath so they conduct um, impulses better. So much is happening. And not only is a lot happening, but it's incredibly sensitive to the chemicals we put in our body and the influences that happen around us in our environment, if we're exposed to trauma, if we're exposed to toxic stress, that kind of thing. But also if we're exposed to really good things like support and love and comfort and, you know, all those wonderful hormones that we need in order to sort of feel that like the oxytocin that we get when we get a hug or when we pet an animal. So given that, you know, we know for a fact that there is, uh, you know, the party line is there is no safe amount of alcohol during pregnancy. That has been the party line for a long time. We wouldn't give our zero to two-year-old alcohol, right? Because there really isn't a safe amount of alcohol in that period either. Not like we can test it and give, you know, infants alcohol, but there's no safe period during, no safe amount during that period either. And if if adolescent brain development is happening in the same way it does during zero to age two, there really isn't a safe amount of alcohol or drugs to put into the adolescent brain either, mainly because of all of this construction that's going on. And some parts of the brain are also much more affected by drugs and alcohol than they would be when once the brain is finished developing. And the problem is, is once the brain is finished developing, you can't go back. You can't reopen those doors and go back and, you know, finish building up those synapses or finish myelinating those nerve sheaths. You just can't do it. So there are dangers to the adolescent brain that just don't exist later on. So that's why the message throughout the book is just delay, delay, delay. And, you know, there's that... Oh, sorry. There, well, I, no, no, no. There's there's that issue. There's the brain development issue. And then there's the issue that statistically speaking, we know that 90% of people who have problems with drugs and alcohol during their lifetime start before the age of 18. We know that if a kid starts taking drugs and alcohol when they're 12, 13, 14, they have a monumentally higher risk of having substance use disorder during their lifetime than if they wait until they're 18 or 21. At 18, it goes down to the teens percent wise. And at 21, it goes down to about 10% likelihood that they'll have a problem during their lifetime, which is sort of what the whole population looks like. About 10% of us um, just can't use drugs and alcohol responsibly. So those two things together, the brain development issue, and then the statistical chance of them having a problem later on in life and how that goes down with each passing year until they reach the age of 21. I think that those put those two things together. And that's why now in our house, we have a zero tolerance policy. No, you will not drink or use drugs until you are 21. Yeah, I think one of the powerful things that I learned from your book that I had not understood the the science behind. So I, you know, I want to share it and correct me if I'm not saying this correctly. 
But during this this plasticity phase, it's a use it or lose it kind of a system. So yeah. in the adult brain, if alcohol is present and the synapses are unable to complete the communication between the two of them in an adult brain, they can wait until that alcohol is gone and then resume communication later in a child's brain. If the alcohol is uh, preventing the communication, that synapse dies never to be born again. That's part of the pruning, the use it or lose it. So it it is a, a one and done situation. Synapses have to talk to each other to continue to grow and talk and and continue to expand. And it's also important to realize that the adulting part of the brain, that frontal lobe, prefrontal cortex area that really handles all of the more higher level organization time management stuff, that's just coming online during adolescence. And we want that that hooking up the lower brain to the upper brain to go on unimpeded. And it's important that those synapses keep talking to each other. The other problem is that the lower brain, which is really powering a lot of what kids do during adolescence, that part of the brain is exquisitely sensitive. And especially, for example, the hippocampus, which is where memory formation happens. Um, That part of the brain is really susceptible to drugs and alcohol. And so, for example, when we equate short-term memory loss with uh, pot use, that's because we're talking about the hippocampus being affected in people who use pot. And there's evidence to show that people who are chronic pot users have much smaller hippocampi than people who don't use pot. So there's something in there that the, the drug is does a bunch of different things, but to keep it really, really simple, it affects how the the brain nerves talk to each other. It affects the um, the balance of all the chemicals, the neurotransmitters in our brain. And boy, the adolescent brain is struggling to find balance anyway. And when we use drugs, what you have to understand is they're a great short-term fix for anxiety, for depression, for you know all kinds of things. In the short term, they work great, which is why we're drawn to them. But over the long term, they actually exacerbate many of these conditions. So if your kid has anxiety and is using as, for example, Georgia, who's featured in one of the chapters of the book, if Georgia uses alcohol to quell, to silence her anxiety, what she's actually doing over the long term is increasing her anxiety and creating a a cycle in which the only way she gets her anxiety alleviated is by drinking. And yet the drinking is exacerbating her, her anxiety. It's just a horrible little cycle that happens there. Yeah. And boy, do we have a a culture of very anxious kids Mm -hmm. and I'm sure living in the time of a pandemic with, with a lot of those other environmental pieces broken, you know, we don't have our social connections the same way. We don't have our independence from our parents in the same way. All these other important developmental pieces of adolescence are, are not unfolding in a natural way over the, the course of this pandemic. So, um, well, and if anything, it looks like parents, you know, because we have so little control about what's happening in the outside world. A lot of us, me included, are exerting more control inside our house. The only place where we can exert that control and my house has never been cleaner and I've never had more, I've never had more requirements of my children. And yet, if you think about it from the kid's perspective, they have so little autonomy and control in their world, even when they're allowed out there in the bigger world. Now that we're all sort of stuck together in our houses, if we're putting more more controls on our kids, just imagine how that makes them feel in terms of the level of control and the lack of control they have in their worlds. It's, it's, if anything, we've exacerbated the problem by sticking us all in these houses together. 
Well, and so, you know, as we're, as we're all stuck at home and, and hopefully parents are having more time to hang out with their kids, this is a good opportunity to have the talk then about, about alcohol. And so what needs to be included in that talk besides the, the, the science, which I, I hope mm-hmm. parents are maybe hearing for the first, you know, are, are taking quite seriously mm-hmm. because I'm sort of amazed at how, in, in essence, laissez-faire parents' attitudes are. They're often the ones buying the alcohol. They're, you know, they're kind of like, well, you know, if they're going to drink, they might as well do it safely at my right. house or, well, they do. And I understand that. I totally understand that, right? I mean, don't you want the idea that you could just have the kids at your house and you could take away all the keys and you're like, well, as long as they're going to drink, at least they're safe. I get that. I really, really do. The problem is, is that parents who have a permissive attitude about drugs and alcohol, and we'll talk mostly about alcohol because I'm assuming most parents aren't having a laissez, but who knows? Um, (laughs) With legalization, who knows? Um, But the problem is, is that those kids are far more likely to go out and have substance use disorder during their lifetime. And yes, there are some causation correlation issues with the, with the statistics, which I go into in the book, but that sets up a situation in which your kids say, oh, well, but mom and dad have a permissive attitude about drugs and alcohol. And so it's the parents that have a, no, you will not. And it's illegal, not until you're 21. Um, And I get that for a lot of parents, they're like, well, that's just not reasonable because kids are going to drink. But that's just not true. Um, One of the best things we can do for our kids to get at your question is um, help them understand how some, give them some refusal skills. So for example, and this is also called inoculation theory, um, which is the reason the word inoculation is in the title. Um, When kids have a rebuttal to, for example, the appeal, oh, everybody does it, you know, that sort of thing. Um, If your eighth grader knows because you've told them that that's just not true. Actually, research shows research that's based on surveys of kids themselves shows that in eighth grade, only 24% of kids admit that they've had more than a sip of alcohol by the end of eighth grade. That's not everybody. That's a quarter of kids. So understanding what those numbers look like and having that background, having that knowledge to come to your kids with. But the real answer to your question of how do we talk to kids about this stuff is it depends, right? Because it has to start really, really young and not necessarily with a conversation about smoking crack or, you know, that kind of thing. It starts really young. It starts with kids in nursery school, preschool and kindergarten, where you're talking about, you know, why do we, um, why don't we swallow the toothpaste? Why do we spit it out? Or why don't we eat those Tide Pods that look like those big pieces of candy? Or why do you think mommy's name, can you find the letters that spell mommy's name on this drug, on this prescription label? And why do you think the letters of your name are not there? Do you think that you could just take medicine that's, what if daddy had medicine? Could mommy take that? And understanding that, you know, prescriptions are something that only the person on the label is supposed to take. That's a conversation that starts really young. And then it progresses in a developmentally appropriate way all the way through until your kid goes off to college and, and beyond actually. But in the book, I lay out not just like 
general ideas, but scripts for things that you can talk to your kids yeah, about all the so way. So helpful, right? Yeah, parents love, they, that's a, a, that's a really nice gift to give parents. Like, how do I say it? Show, show yeah. me the language, you know? Right. Which came as a surprise to me because I'm pretty ornery and I don't want people to tell me what to do. I'm like, scripts, I don't want to be told what to do. But as I went out on the road with Gift of Failure, I was really surprised. I mean, people would have pen and paper in hand and say, no, 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 tell me exactly what to say. So this time around, you know, I tried to do that in Gift of Failure to some extent, but in this book, I'm like, okay, if these conversations are challenging or upsetting, or it might make you feel more safe to have something memorized when you go in, great. I'll give you something to memorize before you go in. Yeah. And you're a natural educator and you live in the world of kids. And so it's a, what may seem like a simple skill to you for other tongue-tied introverts who are nervous and <laughs> find this a really taboo topic. They're just like, oh. Well, oh, and I think overwhelmed. I, I think because I spend so much time around them, even now that I'm not in the in the classroom teaching as much, I'm still talking to kids all the time because I'm going into schools and and doing that virtually and talking to kids all the time. I think because I'm not their parent there, and my message to them is often like, "What is it you want me to tell your parents?" And they're they feel fairly urgent about some of the things they want their parents to know. So when I give a whole school full of kids my email and ask them, "What do you want me to tell your parents?" They send me the most amazing things. They just send me the coolest stuff in the way they want it. They want their parents to understand it. And, uh, and it's really, really helpful. Yeah. So, you know, if we're telling them about the brain science and then we're, you know, you started talking about, um, the, the rebuttal arguments for everybody's Mm -hmm. doing it, but, you know, it's not just that it's whatever the lower percentages and they think that we really are steeping our kids in a culture th- that sends constant messages mm-hmm. that says alcohol is everywhere. Everybody's doing it. It's it's um, almost your right to do it and you need it to have a good time and you need it to look mature. And you like it, there's just so much cultural messaging about the place alcohol plays in in the lives in their lives through movies social media whatever wherever that messaging is it's it's a lot we have to to push back against well and i think you left out the one that wor- worries me the most so yes they're getting a lot of messaging and it's getting better but even in cartoons even in children's programming um the marketing to kids is you know a huge problem but here's the cool thing for me anyway so especially in adolescence kids hate feeling like adults are manipulating them. So those conversations about what's actually being advertised, we have those conversations with my adolescents all the time, with my young 20s and adolescents all the time, because that idea of like, oh, this is a commercial for a beer, but look, what they're really selling is the idea that if you drink this beer, you'll have these pretty friends and you'll be out on the beach on a weekday afternoon, that kind of thing. But what I was going to say was the thing that worries me the most um, when you outline some, some of the messaging that our kids are getting is the messaging of I need this drink, just one drink, but I need this drink in order to deal with the hardship of the day, in order to wind down at the end of the day. Um, Mommy deserves her wine. This is mommy juice, Um, the sippy cups on top of the wine. That whole mommy culture of drinking, 
the way that's often portrayed is, oh, it's five o'clock. Mommy needs her glass of wine. And it's, we don't mean to do that, but you know, in a house, in our house, for example, I don't drink. So we don't keep alcohol in the house. My husband, when he wants to have a drink with dinner, will purchase uh, like a single, you know, a big single beer or um, a, a bottle of wine. And then he gets rid of whatever's left at the end. So that does two things for my kids. Number one, my kids have an example of um, the way I handle drinking, which is it's not safe for me, so I don't do it. But they also have the model of my perfectly normal moderation husband um, and how he drinks. And the way he drinks is not, oh, my gosh, it's been such a rough day. I have to have this beer or I deserve this beer um, because it's, you know, I worked hard today, that kind of thing. It's a matter of this is delicious. My food is delicious. I enjoy these two things together. And um, that's, you know, why I'm having this beer. But it also gives them a moment to see um, how much he empathizes with me and how much compromise there is in our marriage because he doesn't leave the rest of that alcohol around in the house because he's looking out for me and and what would be troubling for me. So I think the messaging that I most worry about is that mommy juice, mommy drinking culture, and that message of you deserve this, you worked hard, therefore you deserve this. We deserve a lot of things, but I don't think it's necessary to make, you know, getting out of our heads and out of our bodies. Because the thing that I'm hoping this book helps with is, you know, the ki kids start drinking because they need something, whether that's approval from other kids, whether that's liquid courage in order to, to overcome social anxiety. So I want to help kids get there without needing that in order to over to get over that threshold. Because I can tell you right now, the drink I miss the most, oh, the drink I miss all the time, is the one before I go to the party so that when I, so that I can just be a little more loose and not quite in my head when I first walk in the door with that imposter syndrome and that you know, who am I to, to walk into this party and talk with these accomplished people kind of thing. Um, and I just want kids to feel like they are enough and they don't need this substance to make them feel like they are enough. Yeah. So um, a real wake up call for, again, the the pandemic and how, and how much more mm -hmm. people are saying I deserved it or it's hard times. And yeah, we're drinking more. The research is pretty clear on that. We're drinking more during the pandemic. We're, we're drinking more. And if the messaging to our kids is we need to do it just to self self soothe and manage. Um, to your point, it's not a good coping skill for how to deescalate our stress or, or our anxiety. Well, and um, it doesn't have to be so stressful because we're doing the same thing with food. I mean, a report came out just the other day showing that everyone's gained weight during this pandemic. And yeah, we've been yeah. using food for comfort. So, you know, if we're using food for comfort and we're using booze for comfort, that can be a, just a conversation about what we do to self-soothe and that there are other ways to self-soothe. So, you know, for me, I, I have gained weight during this pandemic. I tried my uh, my stage clothes on the other day because I'm going to have to put them back on soon. It was not pretty. It was it was not pretty at all. And I I don't fit into some of my stage clothes. So I'm going to have to work on that. And we had a conversation about it the other day about, uh, yeah, mommy's been sitting a lot more and eating more chocolate. And yeah, we got to have that conversation too. So to tie those conversations together. Why not? It's the same mechanism. Yeah. You know, the other thing I found interesting in, in my um, clinical practice is uh, I had the naive assumption that drinking uh, underage was all about parties and peer pressure. And I was really surprised when um, teens in my practice were actually drinking alone. 
yeah. um, that, that yeah. this was not about peer pressure at all, that this right. was really um, to, to, to deal with emotions. And um, yeah, so that's there uh, are there in the college chapter. I talk about that. There really are types of drinkers and the reasons that we drink it can be an indicator for whether how our risk for it becoming a problem. And it's, you know, if we're drinking because it's a social thing, if we're drinking because we're going to a party, um, that's different, a different type of drinking than the drinking to alleviate stress and anxiety and deal with unresolved trauma, deal with stuff that never got treated, deal with, you know, the things that we deal with in our life that are difficult for us. And so sometimes we mask it so that we don't have to deal with it. And, and so, you know, if, if we're, if we're going to say to parents, uh, you know, ha- have the talk, um, these are the components that need to be in that conversation. And as you say, it's not one conversation. It's, it looks a lot right. of different ways over right. the, over the lifespan. But you also said that for you, you, you embarked upon this book because you really wanted to specifically look for protective factors. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so what did you unearth there? <laughs> so I think of risk. And so really what we're talking about throughout the entire book is the balance of risk and protection. And like one of those old timey scales of justice scales, right? So on one side, we have risks. On one side, we have protections. And if that risk side is really heavy, then we're going to have to put more protections on. So really quickly, big risk factors for substance abuse. Genetics picks up about 50 to 60% of the picture. Um, there's a actually an analogy that comes up a lot that I hate, but it's apt, that um, uh, genetics is the bullet in the gun and that trauma is the trigger. So mm. 50 to 60% um, is genetics, uh, but that is not destiny. Genetics are not destiny. Um, it turns out that adverse childhood experiences, um, the big ones that we've talked about that the CDC and Kaiser Permanente looked at in their ACEs study, like violence in the home, substance abuse in the home, violence in the home, you know, a, a sexual abuse in childhood, physical, all that sort of stuff. Those are sort of the big adverse childhood experiences. Um, but other kinds of trauma. Um, in Nadine Burke Harris's book, The Deepest Well, she goes into the main aces, but she also goes into things like, you know, um, uh, divorce and separation, adoption, a bunch of other traumas that kids suffer that are just part of. And again, I mentioned divorce and separation, and all of a sudden, half the parents listening are going to shut down because they're like, well, there's nothing I can do about that. I got out of a bad situation. I'm not say, talking about divorce and separation or adoption in order to make anyone feel bad, I'm arming you with this information so that you can know that that is the risk factor so that you can appropriately judge your kid's risk. And then there's academic failure, um, early uh, aggression towards other children, uh, social ostracism. These are all risk factors. Now, protection side. First and foremost, early intervention, early intervention, early intervention for academic failure, social ostracism, aggression for the trauma that kids face. And yes, this is a really tough time to be talking about appropriate interventions because it's a hard time to get in with clinicians and stuff like that. But I also talk about in the book, I talk about ways that everyone can access resources either within their community or privately um, that that can get kids interventions. I talk about yeah. resources like I was going to say nurses, school the, nurses, school counselors. Yes, go ahead. Oh, sorry, you're just saying that the, the, yeah. that as much as the pandemic has added this extra layer of pressure, we know it's it's uh, having an adverse effect on mental health. It, it also means that we're talking about mental health, and a yes. lot of of um, community resources have been put out to the public, and yeah. they're trying to get more more free resources so people use them. 
Yeah, in a way, you know, it's been difficult to get in with a clinician right now, but it's also been easier than ever to see that clinician because you can do it virtually. Um, so that's been really interesting. Um, in terms of other protections, you know, our communication, the big, you know, and making sure that we have family rituals that facilitate communication. Um, and it's usually talked about as, you know, family dinner being the protective thing, but I actually see family dinner as a symbolic sort of emblematic thing that, yes, is absolutely part of making sure that our communication is good with our kids and that we're touching base with our kids. But if you, there are other, it doesn't have to be a traditional family dinner. It can be any opportunity to have that time with our kids to get beyond surface conversation and look each other in the eye. So that's a big one. Um, getting adults in as allies, um, you know, school nurses, school counselors, that kind of thing. And having mentors in the community is another, and there's, you know, depending on, depending on your kids' circumstances, there's a whole bunch of other sort of small protections. You know, I joked about getting a dog, you know, that's the, the research is out, but since we are a dog, the research is a little hazy, but since we're an animal family to begin with, we went all in and got another dog and, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> awesome. So I do outline the research so that, um, so that I, there are moments where I can say, look, the research is really clear on this and here's what it says. And there are other times when I say, look, the research is still sort of out on this and there's some evidence for and some evidence that says it may not be that much of a help. But if this is, you know, works for your family, then great. Give it a shot. Um, you know, mindfulness, for example, doing meditation. I talk a lot about um, Dr. Dan Siegel's wheel of awareness and his sort of helping your kid integrate their brain kind of stuff. And um, we tried it in our family and it worked for a little while in terms of getting my kids to engage in that. But, you know, he, they weren't all in. So, you know, but we talked about it and we had, you know, a fun experience trying it out. Anyway, so I well, talk about the big position on it. That's, yeah. you know, it still says that, you know, you as as their as their authority, as their attachment figure, they know your position on it. And I think it makes yeah. it harder to deviate when you kind of, you know, love and trust your parent and um, there's a, a, a wanting to emulate. And I think that's a, pr a huge protective factor right there. Well, and I think one of the things I really had to do was realize that somewhere in here, there has to be an allowance for some humor because this whole, it's a really tough topic. Um, and so some of the stories, including the one about how to get my kids to talk to me, um, I had to really re resort to, some lighthearted uh, attempts to get their attention. And, you know, one of those was a big story I tell in the book about um, a dinner we had where we, um, we ate hot wings. We were emulating the show Hot Ones, which is a show I love. It's on the First We Feast Network on YouTube. And uh, on that show, this guy interviews people while they're eating increasingly hot hot wings. And it's sort of puts the interviewee off their game and they can't really be defensive because there's some humor happening. There's some discomfort in the mouth happening. So, and we love that show. So we emulated that. I secretly put that together at our house and invited the kids in secretly to have our own version of the hot wings challenge. And my husband and I came up with one question per wing for each kid and nothing that would embarrass them, just stuff that really helped me get at who they are and what they want and, and what their dreams are and all that kind of stuff. And we had the best time. It was so much fun. By the time we got to the end, the wings were so hot that we were basically drinking liquefied vanilla ice cream. It was just, it was so fun. 
And, you know, it also allowed my kids to not only, yes, it was funny and they made fun of me for going to these links for wanting to talk to them, but it also showed them, number one, that I do value their, I value them. I value the things they love because I'm willing to come to them on that level, but that I just, I'm, that's how far I'm willing to go in order to connect with them and learn who they are. And I think that makes a statement right there. Yeah. But there's definitely lots of humor in this book because there's no way to handle really tough material without some humor. Yeah. Uh, it keeps us all sane. Um, and yeah, it's a great, absolutely. and it's a great way to, to connect with kids too, because they're nervous about this topic. Yeah. Um, so if we, if we do our, our lifelong conversations and we give them sort of the science and, and the, the why behind our, our, um, our family rules and we uh-huh. arm, we've got the good defense, um, conversation for their re- rebuttals. We've taught them the, the good refusal. Well, what, give us some of your good refusal, um, suggestions. So you're at the party and the alcohol is going around. Uh, how do we, yeah. how do we coach coaching kids to, to handle, navigate the, the moment? We talk a lot about this in our home, mainly because from my perspective, since my kids already have a a heightened risk for becoming, you know, having a problem with it, then we talk a lot about, you know, when use turns to abuse and what that looks like and how to, you know, if you don't want to drink um, somewhere, how you can get out of that safely. And and I also model that for them because I can't drink safely. So when, and I can be tempted. So when I go to a party, I always have an exit strategy. And part of my exit strategy requires me to not be as worried about how my host will perceive it or if my host will be offended by my leaving early than the importance that I am safe. So we have a lot of conversations about ways to get out of it without having to look goofy. And then if things get really to the point where you really just need to offend your host by saying you have to go home, then sometimes that that's what you have to do. But the nice thing is there's so many ways to say no to, to surreptitiously say no to drinking. There's obviously, you can hold the red cup, you know, and um, by the way, a lot of schools are now advising kids that because colleges are looking at social media so much in order to suss a kid out and jobs will actually, people who employ you eventually will look at social media. If you are holding a red solo cup in pictures and you're underage, the assumption will be that there's booze in there. I just wanted to start with that. So a lot of college counselors are telling kids to just avoid holding those red cups in pictures, period. But one of the things that I talk about with my kids is you can put anything in that red cup. It does not have to be, um, you know, it doesn't have to be beer. It can be juice. It can be water. It can be whatever. Just holding the cup. For me, that helps a lot. I do a lot of drinking of seltzer water with lime in it at parties because it looks like alcohol. And if I don't want anyone to ask me about it, then that's that'll work. Um, saying that you're on a medication that makes it so you can't drink. A lot of kids have to take, you know, antibiotics for ear infections or whatever. And that's, uh, or I have a practice tomorrow, an early practice tomorrow. I have there, um, especially if you're Asian, um, an allergy to alcohol is a thing. It is a real thing. It causes flushing. It causes all sweating, all kinds of other things that can be part of your excuse. If you have, there's all sorts of ways that you can say no without being uh, without having to feel like, oh, I'm being one of those teetotalers, you know, goody two shoes kind of thing. Um, There's a list of probably 20 different things in there. So we have a lot of those conversations about 
And and on top of that, they know that if any time they're feeling uncomfortable and they need to use their exit strategy, we have a code that you know they can you know use on their phone. Um, they I have a code that I use with my husband in terms of just a way that I look at him and he knows that it's time for us to go because I'm feeling uncomfortable. And um, you know the nice thing now, and I talk about the fact with my kids that my friends also understand that one of the the lengths that my friends will go to now to support my not drinking are just amazing. Uh, we were going to a party one time, like a unofficial function kind of thing with a business that was starting it. And my friend actually called ahead to make sure that there would be non-alcoholic options for me, thinking that I wouldn't do that. And um, it was just such such a show of support. So when I talk to my kids now about things like friendships, I say, you know, the friendships that I have now I have because these people support me, not like what they want me to be, but they support me. I'm sure it would be easier for my friends if I could drink with them, but I can't. So they support that. And that's what I value in friendships. So now you get to start modeling not only your exit strategies and how you protect that, but also how your friends have your back. And, and having those conversations about friendships are a really important part of protecting your kid from peer influence as well. So it spills over nicely into that chapter as well. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. So, but we, you know, we know that um, we can do all our good stuff and we still have to be, in a sense, prepared as parents for those oopsie moments when we realize that, oh my gosh, my kid's got that, that look in his face. I think there was some alcohol at that party. (laughs) (laughs) And for all my, for all my great rebuts and refusal rehearsals and science lessons and modeling, I still have to deal with a kid who came home drunk. What, what's yeah. your what's your recommendation there? Well, the best part there is uh, the first thing there is let them have the logical consequences that go along with that. Obviously, if it's a school night, they're going to school. You're getting them up at the normal time. They're going to school. I don't care how hungover they are. They are going to school. One of the the, the one time that um, I was really good at, ha- at uh, hiding my drinking. Um, before I I got sober. Um, But there was one time where I really went too far and I got really sick and I had to get up and go and go to work the next morning. And man, that was uncomfortable and painful and a big chunk of information that clearly things were bad. Um, And I needed that in order to be that one more chunk of information that led me to, you know, finally admitting that I had a problem. So let them have the logical consequences. If they did something dumb, if they alienated a friend, all of that has to be their problem, not yours, right? So that's important from the get-go. And then when not in the moment, but later on, when everyone is sort of in a place um, where you've, you know, you're not an empty stomach and you're not angry. You're just coming from a place of support. You have a conversation, not just about, you know, the, you shouldn't be drinking because you're young, but what led to that moment? Why did you decide in that moment to drink? What was it about that moment that overcame, you know, whatever your feelings about yourself? Did you drink just because you wanted to do the things with everyone else and you wanted approval from your, the people that were there? Did you do it because you were really feeling out of place or anxious or depressed or whatever? You need to get at the reasons that the kids are, are, are drinking. And, you know, sometimes it's going to be as simple as I just felt like it. And having these conversations about, you know, just continuing to message and um, about the fact, you know, why it's so important to protect the brain. This is not like, okay, now, 
now you've had that drink, it's all over. There's no more, I've, I've lost the battle. This is moving forward now. You're, you're, you're 16 years old. Moving forward, we still need to make sure that your brain gets nice, is nicely protected and isn't being influenced by these substances. So how can we as parents help you moving forward to, um, you know, to protect your health? And then obviously moving forward with some of the tools that are in the book um, around messaging. So I think that, you know, not just throwing your hands up in the air and saying, oh, well, now now it's over. My kid's a drinker now, you know, that kind of thing. So yeah. Yeah. Steady, steady, steady on steady through. It, yeah. right? it, yeah. it, it's all still impactful. Um, yeah. You do distinguish that, that schools and colleges also have a role to play. Yeah, they definitely. And it's colleges, man, that talk about just falling victim to that. Well, it's going to happen. So there's nothing we can do. Colleges really, um, uh, there's this understanding, you know, that the media that mostly comes from the media that college kids are just going to drink and that's just the way it is. And that culture is part of college. And it turns out, uh, speaking of knowing the data, this is an incredibly important time to know the data because it turns out that that's just not true for all kids, that a lot of kids don't actually want to drink at college. And the problem is, is that we tend to overestimate the importance of alcohol to, especially to college age kids and therefore don't offer sober alternatives, don't offer non-alcoholic alternatives. And what I'm hopeful about is that there is a huge rise in the number of kids who are opting for wellness dorms, mainly because the colleges can offer incentives for, in the same way that, for example, our health insurance companies will offer like bonuses if you show that you go to the gym a certain number of days, what whatever I used to do that. They'll offer these incentives for kids. Um, locally, um, University of Vermont, which is near me, um, has a wellness dorm. And if you continue to sort of get points towards your overall wellness, because you're working out and eating well and not drinking and, and using drugs and not having that stuff in the dorm, you can earn things like Fitbits and stuff like that. Those are increasingly available. Colleges increasingly are available, are offering uh, sober housing, which is fantastic. Recovery housing, sober housing, that's really great. But you have a lot of control over where your kid goes to college in terms of sort of guiding them. And there are so many factors that lend themselves to predicting how much your kid will drink in college, the state they go to college in, the laws in the state they go to college in, the college they go to. Um, talking to your kids about why they've selected a particular college or why they've selected a particular housing alternative inside of a college. We know that, um, for example, frats. And frats, off-campus housing, those have the highest level of, of drinking. Um, and then I give the examples of the lower um, drinking incidents. There are all kinds of things that we can do. And it's not just about, no, you can't live in a frat. It's, why do you want to live in a frat? What are the things you hope to gain by living in a frat? And how are you going to manage the fact that, you know, between, you know, the studying that you have to do and the fact that the frat will be a much more party central sort of um, vomit in the living room kind of place to be? Is that what you want? You know, there's there's all kinds of conversations you can have that are about guiding, not dictating. And those conversations, there are far more ways to get at that topic than you would think. Yeah. Wow. And kids still listen to us. That's the other cool thing. Our older kids still report that parents are one of their primary sources of information around health and safety and, um, and especially around uh, drinking. That that's, they still see us as a source of reliable information. So this book offers the most up-to-date reliable data so that we can use that in order to help inform our kids. 
brilliance. So I will obviously, thank you, Jess. Um, I'm going to put obviously a link to the book, The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in the Culture of Dependence. I'll put the link for, for that up on uh, in the show notes. Is there anything that you want to add? Um, otherwise, we'll close and hopefully you'll come join us again. Well, you can find everything anytime at uh, jessicalahey.com, including on the website, there's a link to my local bookstore that's shipping books for free, but I go there and do personalized, um, I sign things and do personalized inscriptions. So if you wanted that, um, you can go uh, uh, to jessicalahey.com and there's a link right there to my local bookstore as well as all the other places that you can buy books. And everything is there, including my podcast, the hashtag am writing podcast and all the other stuff that I'm up to. Wonderful. We'll, we'll put it in the show notes so that people can continue to follow and learn from you in all those uh, all those great ways. And um, I s- appreciate your time today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Like I said, uh, talking with you is so much fun. Talking with people who get kids and love kids and love adolescents is always a treat. Yeah, teens. We love them. They're the best. <laughs> and, and they listen to us. Go figure. <laughs> oh, they're so great. Oh, thank you so much. Stay well. Stay safe. Thank you so much. Okay, take care. Thank you. As you know, it takes a village to make a podcast. So thanks to my team, including Max Cotter, my editor and technician, as well as the crew at H2O Digital. This podcast was recorded in Toronto, Canada. We acknowledge the land we are meeting on is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.